0: Ultrasound Gel Podcast Ultrasound Gel Podcast Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of the Ultrasound Gel Podcast Gathering Evidence from the Literature My name is Michael Pratts. Today I am joined by Jacob Avila, Cray Bolger, Zachary Ristler, and Mark McGee our fantastic ultrasound gel team. Yeah, so guys, how are you? What's going on today?
1: Oh, it's great, man. I can't believe it's been 100 episodes. This is intense.
0: It really is. This is our fourth year of the podcast. So, it you know, doing one every couple of weeks, it actually lines up. Four years, about 25 a year. Here we are. Wow, we did it.
2: It's taken me
3: 100 to maybe get kicked off. (laughs) So, super stoked about that, that I'm still around after 100.
4: I'm just excited it only took me 100 podcasts to get on.
0: <laughs> That's right, Mark. You finally got on the air. You passed the threshold. We are waiting for 100 to see. Yeah, I realize that some of you may not recognize Mark's voice or Zach's voice as they've only been sporadically involved. Actually, Mark, if you recall, you were on the special edition podcast at Scuff. This
4: is true. This is true.
0: But in any case, there's a lot of people working at this podcast conglomerate behind the scenes. And so... Zach's been helping out with a lot of episodes and does some of the editing and graphics for podcasts he's involved. Mark has been helping out a lot with the article selection. And if you haven't checked that out, it's pretty impressive database. If you go to our website and go to more articles, there's always new articles there of the latest POCUS research to check out. So that's been fun. So, I have to say, over the years, the podcast has really grown a lot and we've added on a lot of different things. When we started out, it was pretty simple and basic. Now we have each post being reviewed by experts from around the world. We've really expanded that database. We've evolved it to be more user friendly and useful to people. And I think it's going in a good direction. I mean, at least I. I've heard a lot of positive feedback and I'm always open to getting more feedback from others to make this a better resource. The cool thing that as the podcast has grown, also the research in ultrasound has really grown. I think we all recognize that compared to a lot of our specialties or subspecialties, ultrasound research is still kind of young and in its early phases so it's been great reviewing the different studies over the years to see how we're now having higher quality a lot more multi-center trials randomization controls and really well done studies so it's been fun to follow that as well now today I I have you all gathered here because we're going to do something really fun. We're going to listen to some ideas that our listeners sent in to the podcast. So we value our listenership so much and we're very grateful for anyone that is listening to this. So before we get to that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the future of Ultrasound Gel. The future looks good. We are going to continue the podcast. The podcast is going to continue to be free and in addition to finding great articles to supplement your education in ultrasound and keep you up to date with the latest research we're also going to do some other things one thing I'm interested in moving forward is getting some more feedback from the audience and really making this more of a conversation hearing what sort of topics you guys want to hear more about what sort of areas do you feel are less established in ultrasound and i think as a group together we can really shape the direction that research goes in whether it's doing research on our own or encouraging research or talking about research there's a lot of impact that we can have there now some other little things coming down the line maybe we start an app that's one thing i've talked about where all of the episodes and all of the graphics and all of the links are all available on an app We have also talked about getting CME or continuing medical education for our podcast. And if there's enough clamoring, we'll make it happen. If that's important to you that you get credit for listening to every podcast, I think that's something we can swing. One thing that's super important that probably everybody is wondering about is how can I get my hands on a super cool exclusive ultrasound gel t-shirt? Only few people in the world have these currently. I have one. You guys all have one, I'm pretty sure. Mine has
1: a stain on it, though. Well, you, it's character. It's character. Um, just to be clear, the you know for our listeners, uh, Michael, we all had to actually, it was like a big ceremony with capes and rings and books and stuff. That's the only reason we got it. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I feel like if we could maybe decrease the requirements to get the shirt, um, I think more people would be able to get the shirts. You know what I mean? Because it was pretty intense. It was like a three-day
0: ordeal. Yeah, that's true. There were a lot we couldn't eat couldn't eat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we shouldn't really speak about the ceremony itself. It's
1: Does that mean I have to give the shirt back now? I really messed up, you guys.
4: I'm pretty sure that was the first rule. <laughs>
0: we'll we'll make the shirts available to people sometime, and they will probably be available for purchase through our website. We'll we'll work on that. Okay, now for the moment that we've all been waiting for, we're going to hear from our very special listeners. Now, I really appreciate everyone that sent in ideas. It was very exciting, and these are phenomenal ideas, so it's it's going to be great. We're going to listen to ideas for the future of point-of-care ultrasound research, dreams for studies that could actually happen or perhaps are already ongoing. Let's start with number one. This comes from our... Good friend and faithful listener, Patrick Bafuma, who is a superstar in his own right. So he wrote in to the podcast and said, a suggestion for research, PA slash NP SONO. I occasionally hear about docs saying they have safety concerns, which is in quotes, with mid-levels doing point of care ultrasound or issues with APPs being able to bill. A few more studies elucidating our abilities should hopefully alleviate that and encourage better patient care since we see a significant volume of patients in the department. I couldn't agree more. Why don't we see more of this? What do you guys think?
1: Can we uh, can we do like a hand raise since there's four of us when one of us wants to talk? Like that's what my I'm, I've learned that from my kids Zoom.
3: Watching my kindergartner do his Zoom is much more successful than us
1: right now. <laughs> I believe that there really is no difference behind an MP getting good at an ultrasound guided IV, getting good at echo, getting good at a fast exam compared to a physician doing it. I mean, the skill set, to be honest, and I don't know how popular this is going to be, but I mean, you could take a middle schooler and walk them through the hand movements and they can do it. And I don't mean a middle schooler because they're young. I mean, because they have no medical knowledge whatsoever. I work with some phenomenal PAs, some phenomenal MPs. That I would trust to take care of you know my family members just like some of the physicians I work with, Um, and putting the ultrasound in their hands would only help. I mean, there's no like, from my point of view, there's no issue because they were going to be integrating that into their clinical practice if I have somebody that comes in, say my mom comes in and she's in a hospital where an MP or a PA is the first one to see her, I'd want that MP and PA, if my mom's short of breath, to be able to quickly diagnose her with CHF or COPD. I wouldn't want her, that MP PA to have the limitation of saying, well, it's not within my scope. Let me wait to get the chest x-ray, which I think is kind of ridiculous. So those are my thoughts.
0: Yeah. I mean, if We're saying it's good for certain diseases or certain environments, then I think it's probably good regardless of who's doing it. As long as everyone gets adequate training in it, it should really help people in the same way.
3: Jacob, I don't disagree with you. I too would want my family member to have the utmost of care. However, I think part of it comes down to the foundational training. We see this happening in specialties outside of emergency medicine who don't have structured regulated training within their residencies doing one to two day courses on a weekend and trying to get credentialing. And we know that that's not adequate. That's not comparable to the three years we provide our residents in emergency medicine training or a critical care fellowship. And I think that's the big thing is how do you ensure adequacy of training regardless of your credentials? I think the other thing is most APPs are practicing underneath someone else's license and that someone else needs to feel comfortable interpreting and applying the images that are acquired. So I don't think it's a can they do it. I think the question is, how do we ensure that this is being done right?
0: Yeah, that's a really important point, Gray. I'm glad you brought that up. All right, let's switch gears, and now we're going to hear from our next listener. Our first audio recording is from our very own fellow at Ohio State, Heathen Patel. So he's a wonderful guy. It's been great getting to know him. Really smart. Let's see what he has to say.
5: Hey, Ultrasound Gel Team. This is Heathen Patel. I'm a primary care ultrasound fellow at Ohio State and completed my training in family medicine. I'd love to see some research in the coming years on the evaluation of dyspnea and the outpatient setting using POCUS. Quite often, we see patients present with a mixed picture of COPD versus CHF versus possible bronchitis or pneumonia. It would be great to see a protocol developed that would look at the cardiac views, the lung views, both the anterior fields and the lateral fields, and the IVC to evaluate for causes of dyspnea. The expected outcome measures that I foresee are the time to diagnosis from initiation of POCUS compared to the current gold standard, which would be chest X-ray and vital signs, Um, A second outcome measure would be comparing the specificity and sensitivity of both approaches. A third measure would be potentially seeing if there was a difference between management um, outcomes based on the two approaches. Limitations include experience in individuals in primary care ultrasound. Another limitation is the lack of time during a clinical encounter to be able to actually conduct an exam like this. But I'm optimistic that as POCUS becomes more prevalent, research similar to this will be conducted.
0: Thank you, Heathen. This is another great idea. And I like how he's switching gears into a different practice environment.
3: I mean, I'm probably biased because Heathen is my fellow, but I think this is a phenomenal idea. If you think about it from a patient satisfaction standpoint, and even an efficiency and workflow standpoint, you see a patient, they look kind of crummy. Maybe you say, go to the ER. I think you're in heart failure. Maybe your patient says, no, thank you. And your follow-up is, well, I can send you somewhere else to get a chest x-ray, which I'll get a read on later tonight or tomorrow, and then I'll call you with your critical result at that point in time and then tell you to go to the ER. Or you spend an extra five minutes at most doing a quick look at the bedside in your clinic and say, you know, I think your heart looks worse than what the cardiologist said last time, so we probably need to get you in for a comprehensive echo. Or it looks like you've got fulminate pulmonary edema. Your heart looks a lot worse you need to go to the ER to get admitted. It would help us out in the emergency room streamlining workflow and also making sure that the people who need to be there to get admitted are there and the ones who don't, aren't, and your patient's not frustrated that they came to the emergency room at 2 in the morning for a critical result that wasn't
4: even accurate. Lung ultrasound, I think, is one of those areas of ultrasound that we've really um, expanded and pushed, and it's become something that um, we've implemented uh, a lot more sort of accurately in the emergency department. And and honestly, I think, you know, approaching the undifferentiated dysmic patient doesn't need to be a very complicated ultrasound. And in fact, probably just looking at the lungs gives you a ton of information. Um, and I absolutely... I'm all for implementing it in every situation possible. If it's, you know, if your medics are carrying ultrasounds, having them looking at lungs, if you're in a primary care setting or an austere setting, using it to look at lungs, you can get a really quick idea of is this patient, you know, just like Jacob was saying, is this patient volume overloaded and it's CHF or is it, or, you know, are there, is it just A lines and it's um, COPD or do they have a pneumothorax? I think you can get a ton of information quickly. I think there's also, and a lot of people have batted this idea around before, interesting um, uses in in sort of like, you know, CHF patients monitoring beelines at home. Like, can you manage their CHF remotely with just by looking at the lungs? I think it's, I think lung ultrasound is, you know, one of those areas that we spent a lot of time ignoring, but now we understand how useful it is. And I think probably it has a huge future in medicine.
1: For me, I think one of my things is I agree that we should probably explore this more, but I have to be honest with myself and understand that I really don't know what it's like to work in a clinic. I don't know what a common complaint is in a clinic, and I don't know where ultrasound would be the most useful. I imagine shortness of breath would be huge, but like, what about, I don't know, AAA screening? Um, if there is a, what about thyroid, which is something that we never do, right? I mean, I, I, I've i found thyroid stuff, but it's not like something that I would say like, yeah, I can do thyroid ultrasound. Uh, maybe getting IV access is something that can be tricky in clinic if like you have an in-house lab or whatever. Um, so I think that all of that is perfectly valid, but I would be stoked um, to maybe have heathen or somebody else um, that is actually in that situation talk about, some you know some barriers that ultrasound might be able to implement, and then use that as a basis to help figure out articles to to basically choose ones that are relevant.
3: Jacob, I will tell you that Ethan is already thinking about all these things. Part of his training is he's following endocrinology to look at thyroids to decide who may need to be seen sooner by them. The other thing he's doing is setting up a project looking at aorta screening in the family medicine clinic. So he's right on top of that with you.
0: For our next recording. Someone that you all may know because he kind of is a frequent visitor to the ultrasound podcast world and no stranger to FOMED. It is the man himself, Kian McDermott. I love
1: Kian.
6: Hi, Mike. Hi, Cray. Kian McDermott here. First off, well done. What an amazing, fantastic effort to get to a centenary of episodes with ultrasound gel. Now, there are two areas of research that I'd like to look at going forward, or at least think about. The first is echo in cardiac arrest, that's transthoracic echo, and the next is the Vexus protocol. So the first time I heard about echo in cardiac arrest was when I read about Romolo Gasparri's work with the Reason Network, and I realized that we really need to use echo in every arrest that we're treating. I would love to see some human studies being generated from the animal data surrounding the area of intra-arrest transthoracic echo. I use this technique all the time during an arrest to see if the LV is being compressed and to make sure that we're not obstructing the LVOT during CPR. So it's one way of optimizing and improving rates of return to ROSC and perfusion uh, during CPR. Now, Vexus is a hot and critical topic. That's Venus venous excess ultrasound to you and me, and it's being used by all the smart intensivists in Canada. Basically, we're looking at the waveforms of splenic vein, hepatic vein, renal artery to see if there's a reversal of flow to indicate fluid excess, or at least that's my understanding of it. I would love to see this being used in the ED setting. Is there some way we can combine lung ultrasound with Vexus protocols to help guide fluid administration in the emergency department? So Vexus, intra-arrest, transthoracic echo are my areas to watch going forward. Thanks again, and fantastic job.
3: Can I tell you how happy I was to hear his voice? It brought me so much joy. I love Kian.
2: Amazing ideas and I think really some stuff that could uh, change our management, change how patients get cared for in the emergency department. I love that someone wants to study this and I am really excited to find the results so that I could maybe apply it to my practice setting. I do think that for me, Sometimes I feel like the ideas that we kind of use in emergency medicine and ultrasound, I think there's this kind of, it's almost a uh, bimodal distribution. There's kind of the really cutting edge uh, things like the VEXIS and maybe using TTE uh, like TE for checking where we're putting our uh, hand positioning. And I think that this hopefully will be the future as we get better and better. Uh, but I also think that. Some of this stuff, I find, you know, I really want to make sure that the people that I teach know the basics, know the basic echo, know, uh, you know, IVC. I think that some of this stuff is really awesome. And I hope that we kind of keep pushing those boundaries uh, while still making sure that the majority of people can learn the basics.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, Zach, because what Kian's getting at here is we know that TEE is good for the LVOT compression and kind of figuring that out. And there's some preliminary studies that show that can have a real benefit in return of circulation. So if you don't have TE, what can you do with the transthoracic echo? So I love that. And Kean's always, uh, he's certainly an expert in cardiac arrest ultrasound. So it's great to hear those thoughts from him.
1: So it's just using it like intra compressions is what That's what he's saying, like, he's not saying like change the indications or whatever. It's just like adding, I guess, something to it, which to be honest, like sometimes when that Lucas device is on, it's like super easy to get an apical four chamber view of the heart um, on some patients. And even a sub xiphoid view sometimes is, is difficult, but doable. I wonder also as like a surrogate marker of how compressions are going, if there would be a way to like, maybe measure the amplitude of a carotid waveform or something like that, some kind of like surrogate marker that actually matters, such as brain perfusion via the ultrasound. I mean, you run into a bunch of issues with the uh, Doppler angle and the reproducibility of that, but that would be a sweet study um, to, to know if it's useful, if it's feasible even.
3: I totally agree. I would love to see more high quality cardiac arrest studies. I think the stuff we have out there does not accurately reflect the use of POCUS. In cardiac arrest, most of it says that we Cause delays, but I personally think we're making this too complicated and asking way too many questions. And saying that ultrasound improves mortality or survivability in a patient population that already has low mortality and survivability, I think it needs to optimize CPR, having more protocols similar to CASA, but even more simple than that, that keep us off the chest shorter. As Jacob said, it's really easy with a Lucas and honestly even a manual compressor to pop the probe on an apical 4 as long as your patient isn't honestly too thin and look at the quality of CPR. And I think those studies are in process and will be coming out to say, should we be moving our hands? But I agree with you that our real question shouldn't be how good is the LV squeezing based on our objective assessment, but it should be how well are we perfusing the brain, which transitions nicely into the last topic we're going to talk about. And something I've wanted forever, but I'm either too lazy or not motivated enough (laughs) um, or don't have the technology readily available at my fingertips to do something like sticky ultrasound probes. Now that we're seeing our probes not be crystal-based, I think this is an opportunity. If your probe could be an EKG lead that you put over your temple for transcranial Doppler How amazing would that be to look at MCA perfusion during CPR?
0: Kian, you're a gentleman and a scholar, and you've been a supporter of the podcast, not just as an expert reviewer, but as a listener since the beginning. So we thank you for that. Now, another very smart guy,
7: Greg Isinger. Let's hear from Greg. Hey, guys. My name is Greg Isinger. I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow, previously trained in emergency and internal medicine. And lucky enough to have learned much of what I know about ultrasound from your very own Cray Bolger and Mike Prats. As an emergency and critical care physician, one of my favorite applications of bedside ultrasound is the assessment of volume responsiveness. IVC collapsibility index is great, but I really like using some of the more advanced techniques such as the LVOT VTI. It's easy to measure at the bedside using an apical four-chamber view of the heart and can be used to estimate the cardiac output. But to be useful for the assessment of volume responsiveness, you have to make serial measurements over time, often before and after a maneuver such as a straight leg raise or a fluid bolus. The problem is that in between measurements, it can be challenging to get back to the exact same view so that you can be sure your numbers are consistent and precise. What if there was an ultrasound probe that could be left on the patient so that you know that you're measuring exactly the same thing every single time? Well, I recently learned about a technology being developed out at UC San Diego, using piezoelectric crystals embedded into a stick-on patch that could be applied to the patient. What if you could stick one of these onto your patient in the emergency department, find the LVOT VTI, and leave it in place throughout their ICU course as a continuous assessment of their cardiac output? Although there are plenty of other non-invasive cardiac output monitors available, this would be the first one that I know of that uses ultrasound. You could even call it the sonographic SWAN. Anyways, congratulations on 100 awesome episodes. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for all the hard work you guys put into keeping us all up to date on the wonderful world of ultrasound.
1: That'd be great. We just talked about the Doppler angle, or I just talked about the Doppler angle.
7: And if you just
1: have it consistent, um, you don't really need like a net. I'm probably using my words wrong, but you don't need an actual number. You're just looking for differences in that number, assuming that the Doppler angle doesn't change between the one measurement and the other, right? So you could be completely off and have like a tiny little waveform. You could amplify that waveform and then just see how it changes from one uh, intervention to the next or either a a fluid bolus or a passive leg raise. That would be kind of awesome, actually, like to have it that way. I mean, That's a great idea I hadn't thought about.
2: Exactly. Keeping the angle the same, keeping the image the same is, is the key to VTI, and the sticker would kind of accomplish that. I think it's really awesome. I think with ultrasound kind of being on a chip technology, uh, this is definitely something that I guess could be possible. Some engineer out there listening hopefully will make it happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's take a step back. Just the technology in general can be used for so many different applications. Like we could do almost anything with ultrasound based sticker technology. And so this is one application in critical care, but I have a suspicion we'll be seeing more of this in the future in a lot of different ways as this technology develops. And Greg was nice enough to send us some articles on this. So those will be in the show notes. Way to go, Greg. Cool idea. Now next we're gonna hear actually two audio clips in a row because these tackle similar issues. First we'll hear from Sarah Urquhart and then from Tim Hoffman.
6: Hi, Ultrasound Gel Podcast, you are awesome and congrats on the 100th episode. This is Sarah, I'm an emergency ultrasound researcher and med student in Grand Rapids, Michigan and my ultrasound research dream would be to figure out how to make evidence based bedside ultrasound standard of care in every single ED.
8: Hey there, my name is Tim Hoffman and I am a second year resident at The Ohio State University's Emergency Medicine Program. My interest in ultrasound was peaked a few months into my residency when I began to learn the value of POCUS in critical care situations to answer important clinical questions rapidly and without having to move the patient, transfer the patient, take them out of the critical care bay. My hope. Moving forward is to become more involved in translational opportunities to bring ultrasound to the community or rural setting. What does it look like to bring those basic tenets of POCUS to that setting? How can we provide reliable, reproducible teaching to help broaden POCUS skill sets for our community and rural colleagues? Now I'm not talking about having all of them be at the level of fellowship-trained ultrasound faculty. Not talking about teaching them minutiae of how to calculate ejection fraction either but how do we give them the tools to be able to efficiently and accurately perform a rush exam on a hypotensive patient? Blue protocol for a patient with respiratory distress. Critical care ultrasound for a coding patient. This opportunity to translate major aspects of POCUS to the community EM setting, that is what gets me excited and what I hope to research and work towards in the future.
0: This is such a fundamental point, and I'm so glad that these listeners brought it up. It's, it's so important that we take a step back sometimes from the complex, sometimes academic uses of ultrasound. I think when we focus on those, we often forget the basics and how not everybody even has an ultrasound in their emergency department or wherever they work. And I think we can do better to figure out how to help those people know how to use ultrasound and to use it effectively in a way that works in their various settings.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it should be kind of everywhere, and I think a lot of it is education and um, knowing the scope, like in what situations you can use it.
4: Agreed. And I think a lot of it's also there's, there's definitely, I think, in some places administrative barriers to it and people that still don't understand how ultrasound is part of um, what we do. And so, you know, having those... Those guidelines and the and the support from the major, um, uh, you know, EM groups, ASAP, AAM, SAEM is also um, super helpful and good for you know people in those settings to know about that they can bring it back to to their leadership and say, look, this is something we can and should be doing.
0: There's been a, a bunch of studies on the barriers to implementing this in community settings, especially, and I think that that work is not yet done because maybe identifying the barriers is first but then how do we overcome it and what sort of educational methods can be implemented to make sure that people are using ultrasound and helping their patients just like we are in academic settings last but certainly not least we have a fantastic research team from the University of Pennsylvania I'll let them introduce themselves but this is an exciting group hi
5: this is Nathaniel Reisinger, Co-Director of the Clinical Ultrasound Fellowship, Cameron Baston, Director of Point-of-Care Ultrasound for the Internal Medicine Department, and Nova Panebianco, Ultrasound Division Director at the University of Pennsylvania. Our group
2: has the following research priorities. One, future research and emphasize prospective multi-center outcomes-based interventions incorporating clinician-performed ultrasound into value-based care models. Some ideas for this include using lung ultrasound to determine diuretic strategy and discharge readiness in patients admitted for volume overload from acute heart failure or end-stage renal disease. 2. Expanding the footprint of ultrasound beyond the inpatient and emergency setting is going to make it possible to leverage a PCORI-based research model to engage patients where they are. For example, home-based ultrasound monitoring of pulmonary congestion or a physician-patient interactive model of image sharing in echocardiography to improve medication adherence.
4: Idea three includes investigating the influence of systemic racism and the role of implicit bias in healthcare delivery and ultrasound utilization. For instance, by assessing bias and image allocation. Lastly, our program is leveraging the surge in technology enabling new scalability and enhanced capacity of ultrasound education and practice. Future research is needed to identify best practices in teleultrasound, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and simulation as it relates to education.
0: Thank you, Nova and Nathaniel and Cameron. These are some incredible ideas, and I know that you guys are always working on really impressive research there. So, thanks so much for sharing this with us.
2: One of the things that you guys talk about the influence of implicit bias in ultrasound. You know, one thing I think back to is when we teach ultrasound, we use live models a lot, and I would say that we try as much as possible to find the thin male that we can kind of scan everywhere, right? But are we missing out? Are we teaching the residents or teaching how do you manage doing an echo on a female? How do you kind of deal with a DVT study in someone who is a little bit on the larger side? By not teaching that way, our learners are not able to adapt to that when they, when they see it in, in real life.
3: Zach, I totally agree with you. I think whether they know it or not, people are comfortable on what they learn on. And I've even seen this when I'm teaching like paramedics and they're like, yeah, but my patient's not going to look like X, so this isn't applicable. Honestly, I don't think that's fair to our patients. I think our female patients probably get less cardiac ultrasounds or lower quality cardiac ultrasounds even by our less experienced providers because they're anxious or nervous or afraid to offend somebody. I think our heavier set patients probably are also getting maybe pushed aside. And in reality, I honestly find patients with a slightly higher BMI to be a bit easier to scan than our very thin cachectic patients. But I will tell you, I see my learners shy away and say, well, cannot do this because of habitus, or make a half-hearted attempt because of habitus. And I think that's horrible for our patients because everybody should be able to benefit, and ultrasound isn't limited by habitus, especially the higher BMIs. I honestly find a bit easier to scan. I think another point that you bring up is our students. I know my students learn and in fact we wrote a paper on this uh, the train simulated ultrasound patient which was when we used our students as models that were consented and everything like that and they learn passively just by laying there. They know their windows. They understand probe manipulation. They understand the tiny angles that change an image just by laying there and so if we're either consciously or unconsciously selecting these thin, healthy males, the females, the heavier-set students, are not getting to learn. In addition to those who maybe don't feel comfortable exposing themselves in these communal settings, their education is potentially being compromised by this implicit bias. And I think that's a huge issue. I think one other thing that they might have been talking about in the implicit bias, diversity, inclusion, and equity is which patients are getting the ultrasound. Typically machines are expensive and they go to hospitals and in hospitals that have money. So are we providing lesser care to our patients in lower socioeconomic settings, in our rural settings, in our urban settings? And the answer is probably yes. If the training costs money and the machines cost money and QA costs money, and, you know, having a PAC system that you can interface with costs money, then if the hospital doesn't have money, this is probably one of the first things on the cutting block because it's not yet in the forefront of a lot of our hospital leaders as a necessity for patient care.
1: I struggle with that myself. And I think, Zach, you bring up good arguments. But the on the other side... Um, you know, and I think of the conferences I've been at where there's just like a big open room, everybody's laying on beds. And what if you have, you know, a bunch of people, and then there's like one individual who does not feel comfortable taking their, you know, their top off. Um, Like, how do you approach that in a uh, respectful and um, I guess a way that would make them not feel like they were missing out or felt like they had to? Uh, because of the situation they're in. Maybe it was a medical student that really wants to match at the program where you're doing it. I mean, that's like, to me, that is like almost more risky than not being able to teach, you know, your learners in a conference how to, you know, maneuver around certain anatomical areas. Um, I'm not saying that we should or we shouldn't necessarily. I'm just saying that there's like issues from the person you're scanning, scanning's point of view. And maybe it's a non-issue. Maybe you have them all you know, sign that piece of paper at the beginning that says, hey, this is what to expect. This is what we're going to scan on you. Um, and maybe it's an, a complete non-issue. But that would be a good thing to study.
0: And it's not just with our education either. I think there is really a paucity of research right now in how racism and biases are affecting who is getting ultrasounds. Who are we performing ultrasounds on? who has access to ultrasound technology in the places where they seek healthcare? So there's certainly a lot that can be learned from that and it's incredibly important. They have so many other ideas in their research, I'm just so excited for some of this stuff. Using technologies like teleultrasound, virtual reality, that, that's been developing a lot and there's a lot that we need to figure out in how to implement those in clinical practice and in educational interventions.
4: You know, I think that's extremely interesting, especially in the day and age in which we live right now when we're considering, you know, the risks of bringing learners and students together um, and, you know, scanning each other or scanning standardized patients um, and how can we augment their, their learning um, in a way that is, you know, frankly safe. And it's something that, you know, that even right now we're, we're running ultrasound sessions for our medical students and, and we've been having these conversations and how do we adjust and adapt and limiting, you know, the number of students and the number of time. Um, and so I think having some more data to fall back on to, to build a structured program um, and, and be confident that they're still getting something out of it, I think would be extremely useful right now
0: and i think we can all agree that for all of the topics that we've discussed today having these in the form of prospective multi-center studies that actually focus on outcomes that are relevant to patient values would be the best way to do it so again thank you to all my friends at university of pennsylvania for sharing these excellent ideas with us so those were the top ones we got so thanks for everybody who submitted And let me summarize some of the things that we discussed with the future and people's dreams for point-of-care ultrasound research. Like Patrick mentioned, different users, whether it be nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, or any other group that could be using ultrasound, we need to study this more and see if it has the same benefits in those populations. Similarly, in different settings like the outpatient setting or even in patients' homes, we need to see how ultrasound can help in those arenas, because I think there's a lot of benefit that it can have for patients there. For critical care ultrasound, I think we all love this. It's exploding, whether it be using transthoracic echo and arrest, the Vexis, or stickers that go on a patient and monitor their LVOT VTI. I think there's a lot of potential to helping critically ill patients using ultrasound, and I think we all are big proponents of that. Furthermore, education using this technology, whether it be virtual reality, artificial intelligence and tele the time is ripe to develop these methods and test them and study them and figure out how to teach ultrasound the best. And perhaps most importantly of all. One thing that was brought up was studying race and bias and making sure that we're giving everyone an equal opportunity to point of care ultrasound and spreading ultrasound to different centers, whether it be in the community or rural setting or academic settings. We need you as our listeners to keep thinking about these ideas, brainstorming projects and ideas of ways that we can get these studies done and learn more. This is still a young field and there's so much to do and I personally am really excited by that. Before we close out this show, i know it's getting a little bit long and we know that our ultrasound gel followers have a pretty short attention span so we try to keep it pretty brief but i would be remiss if i did not thank a lot of people who've been involved in this podcast first of all i have to thank my dear brother thomas tom pratz is an incredible collaborator in this project he does all of our website and he is 24 7 technical support for any problems that I have. He's there for me. So thank you, Tom. You've been fantastic. And this definitely wouldn't have happened without you and your expertise. I also want to thank all my co-hosts and all of my collaborators who are here with me today. Cray, Jacob, Zach, Mark. Thanks so much, guys. This has been a real blast. And I appreciate your participation and putting up with me and all my emails and everything.
1: No, it's been a pleasure, man. It's such an honor to be able to be uh, surrounded by such amazing. People. I feel like I'm in the cool kids club, even though I don't feel like I belong. You guys are like way
0: smarter and read way more <laughs> than I do.
1: So thanks for including me. Of
0: course. Yeah,
4: likewise. Great to be a part of the team.
0: And thanks also to all of our expert reviewers. I don't know if all of our podcast listeners know it, but if you go to our blog posts, at the bottom of each one is the name of the person who reviewed this post prior to publication. And we have some, we, we basically have the best ultrasound people in the world reviewing all of these articles and the blog posts to make sure that we don't say anything crazy and out of line. So thank you for them giving us that extra line of security and adding value to the resource that we provide. I also want to send a quick shout out to my podcast mentor and sensei, Rob Orman. Rob, thank you for your wisdom and guidance. And last but most certainly not least, I thank you, the listener, for your continued Support of this podcast. If you want to find out more, go to ultrasoundgel.org. You can check us out on Facebook, or you can certainly talk to us on Twitter. And until then, my friends, we will talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel more. More. More.